I don't believe that you can have a world that is designed around precision medicine or personalized medicine at the same time as you have a mindset and care delivery around standard of care. Right now, they are coexisting, but over time, I think we'll see clinical experience, drug development, everything will actually be formed around precision medicine. You know, right now, they're coexisting, and hopefully we're on the right side of where things are going to evolve with medicine. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Matthew De Silva was a quantitative finance guy working for Peter Thiel's hedge fund, Clarium Capital, when a family illness profoundly changed the course of his career and led him to found Notable Labs, a Bay Area startup that aspires to identify better treatments for patients. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, Lisa. Yes, David. Um... One of uh, uh, the uh, pivotal experiences uh, of our guest today was uh, uh, significant, you know, really being influenced and in- inspired, unfortunately, in a sense, by a family illness. Mm-hmm. Um, has that be- has have you had a similar experience? I have. I have had a similar experience, as I've I've talked about uh, to people before. My mom had some serious mental illness, and it really played out in pretty profound ways for for my family in terms of you know, the impact on, on how we grow up and, and how we um, survived effectively, you know, and I think it probably did lead to a lot of my interest in behavioral health and things that relate to that, but but to healthcare in general and how to, you know, help people help themselves. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, interesting is almost the wrong word, but a lot of the discussion seems so much less abstract. I mean, I'm always impressed by even when all these doctors, you know, Shisha, I think mm-hmm. of, you know, people have, there are these sort of all these highfalutin views of the healthcare system, but anytime anyone kind of interacts with it, mm-hmm. the view just beca- changes so much Ugh. and becomes, yeah. you know, the, the, theor- the theoretical, you know, way things work is so much different than people's actual experience. Yeah. So, yeah. so with that, um, let's get to Matthew. Matthew, right. welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So you had what, uh, we're delighted to have you. So you had what sounds like a really busy childhood. You were born in Ontario, Canada, and then your family moved to the U.S. when you were three, and you wound up living in something like seven states over the course of your childhood. Is that right? Yes. Every uh, every couple of years, it seemed like my, my dad was getting another you know offer that uh, in, involved us moving across another set of state lines. Well, wow, so he worked, as I understand it, as a marketing director for an oil and gas pump company, and I think your mom's a writer, and you were the oldest of three boys, which I can certainly appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you gravitated to sports and music, and I understand you played a pretty mean trombone, participating in a band that won a competition. So um, you guys had a chance to play Duke Ellington on stage with Wynton Marsalis. That sounds pretty amazing. How did you wind up there? Um, well, uh, this was this was in Chicago. Um, growing up in, in high school, we were really lucky in that you know the the jazz and blues scene here is really good, and we actually had a professional um, as our director, and he he took the took the band really seriously, and uh, and got us into shape for this this Duke Ellington national competition, uh, which we were selected to play in the finals and, and go to Lincoln Center. Um, 
I I was always kind of quasi into the jazz side of things. Um, but it was a really you know formative experience to, to to get to go to New York, and we also took a couple of trips to Europe. Um, you know, open open my eyes a little bit beyond beyond the the cozy confines of the of the Midwest. Very cool. So okay, so like trombone. Why did you pick trombone, and what does that tell us about you? Yeah, no, and, and there's there's definitely like a game that band kids play. You know, guessing other other band kids by their instruments and their personalities. Um, <laughs> yeah, so. So this is an appropriate way to start. Um, so no, I, I, trombone was uh, was appealing to me because um, it's really it's like in the in the middle um, of the of the sort of spectrum of, of sound in a in a in a band, um, and so you're you're really listening. You, and, and there's no positions, right? Like in a, uh, in a trumpet or something, you press a you press a valve, and then and it changes your note on a trumpet. Obviously, kind of a slide, right, to to find the note. So you can really fine tune the the sound um, in a in a way that's very fluid. Um, so how do I connect that with like you know my personality and myself? So I guess I'm you know I'm very comfortable sort of like with ambiguity. Um, and and finding a way through, um, and so I guess maybe that's that's got some aspects of trombone that you could you could pull out. But I think that there's there's some aspect of this is probably like um, squinting a little bit. But we'll, we'll go with that. Yeah, I don't know. I, that sounds creative. You get points for creativity on that. I was going to go with perfectionist that doesn't like to stand out in the crowd. That was going to be my uh, oh, yeah, diagnostic. <laughs> But yeah, no, it always struck me as so hard. You must have, do you have a really good ear? You know, I mean, you must have, right? To be able to figure out exactly where to, st- like how to, just like you're saying, like you, you know, you hit a key on a piano, you more or less get the note. But um, on a trombone, like, what? it just seems so, like, I think ambiguous is exactly right. Um, so then growing up, it sounds like you were interested in history and economics, and you found yourself increasingly interested in behavioral economics and, and ultimately finance. And um, I guess you started off at Purdue, but then you wound up graduating from Cornell, which I note is a bit closer to Wall Street. What was going through your mind at this time? Um, well, so I, I'd gotten um, recruited by uh, by a lot of different schools um, to run cross-country and track. Uh, and, you know, I was an okay high school student, but ended up Sort of finding my footing a lot more in in college, and so by the time I had, you know, was a couple of years into Purdue, you know, the the business program there is 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 great regionally, but um, with ambitions to go to work at uh, a bank on, on Wall Street, it was it was clear that I was going to be fighting an uphill battle, and so um, I still had a fair amount of eligibility left to run. How did you get that ambition to? I'm not sure most people in college um, have the ambition to wind up at a bank on Wall Street. How did um, that ambition come to inhabit you? You know, I got I got really interested in the concept of of um, really like the abstraction of how money works. In that you traded for goods and services. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and and I and I wanted and this was uh, this was all you know, in the years leading up to the, um, the financial crisis. So, uh, you know, I was, I, I was, a, I was an undergrad in 2008, um, studying finance and operations. And I was like, I want to, I want to sort of see the, see the inside of it, um, uh, for, for myself, I guess. And, uh, uh that was going to be a lot easier to do in going to a, in going to a school that had really strong, um, uh, you know, that was being recruited basically by those banks. So I still had a relationship with that coach and was able to transfer and 
and finished out my 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 running career there. But also, you know, it was it was primarily for uh, focusing on the career aspect. So the the you were an undergraduate during the 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 run up to the financial crisis. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And I mean, I my freshman year summer at Purdue, I actually ended up uh, getting as an internship, just to give you an idea of how crazy it was, even for, for me, as an intern in 2007 over that summer um, at, a, at a mortgage broker company, just like down the street from my, you know, my suburban house, they, they had me actually go through and get my mortgage originator license in case I had any family or friends who needed a mortgage. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like a... <laughs> So I'm, I actually officially was a was a licensed uh, mortgage broker in Illinois. Um, uh, I have to check and see if that's <laughs> so still active. Did your studies about I don't even know how to ask this exactly. Were your studies relevant when the market collapsed, or did you learn that the the sort of the theory and the practice did not match up well together, or that they did? Yeah, I mean that's basically how I ended up in behavioral economics, which you know, is, yeah, I started off in in traditional. Um, you know, just like undergraduate business courses, which are, you know, either, either micro or macroeconomic focused, and it's all very simplified and it assumes this rationality that that clearly, as you're pulling out the, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal to read every morning or something, doesn't, what you're learning in, in, in your classes is not mapping to the reality of what's happening outside. Um, so I think that definitely influenced me wanting to understand, in particular, the biases that drive, um uh, drive markets. Uh, that was that was fascinating to me. And then you ultimately found your way to Peter Thiel's uh, hedge fund, Clarium Capital, and you said you especially appreciated his contrarian approach. Yep. Could you help me understand that? So what really attracted me to Peter um, was uh, actually he, it was it was sort of a chapter in a book. Um, the book's called Inside the House of Money, and it's and it's this um, it interviews with a series of you know hedge fund managers. Um, and I already had worked at a at a macro hedge fund as an intern um, and gotten a taste of it. So I really like the concept of thinking about things at the highest level. Um, you know, so so sort of think like if you if you've ever heard of George Soros, like that. You know, that kind of thinking um, and and trading strategy was was attractive to me. But Peter was famous at that point in time. Yeah, Lisa and I ran into him at a globalist convention. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but Peter, Peter, Peter was famous. He's a Republican uh, uh, convention delegate. Yeah. <laughs> no, go. Sorry, go ahead. He's an iron idiot. Peter. So Peter was famous for um, as a hedge fund manager in uh, in the mid two thousands. I mean, I think now very much known for for many other other things. Um, but in particular, he was he was putting out these very very thoughtful um, you know letters. Um, to, to his investors and giving these interviews and these book chapters that I found really fascinating uh, because he was really, it felt to me like him and his team were trying to think through um, uh, their own, you know, their own view. And again, the, con- the contrarian um, uh, view is actually learning, learning how to be like that and sit in it um, was, was clear and attractive to me from the, the interview. Um, you know, right away, especially coming from a big bank where, you know, it's kind of the opposite, right? Everything, everything is driven by um, the incentives inside the bank or, 
you know, what's needed for the client or, or things like that. I mean, so this was a lot of the time that he was teaching the course at Stanford that ultimately became the Zero to One book. And he's That's also right. known for, I mean, no, he's a really interesting guy, obviously. And like, but one of the really questions he always asks is, what's the one thing that everyone believes that, or that you believe that everybody doesn't or something like that? Isn't that his sort of like defining question? Yeah, that's, that's more or less the interview. Is that you know you he is the last interview and and uh, and that was that was my my question. Um, what did you say? Yeah, well, I kind of gave a I gave an answer around um, something around the lines of of uh, sort of social good in business was going to really uh, shift in in the the coming decades. So it's I guess it's somewhat ironic that I'm now you know running. A, I think healthcare is actually one of the areas where that's easier to do than others. Um, you know, but I actually, I was nervous. I was extremely nervous in answering that question because I didn't really feel that at, you know, that point in my life that I had anything that I had super high conviction in. Um, uh, and so I was worried I was going to fail that interview, but you know, obviously I didn't. So. so let's get to that. So one of the more contrarian things you did yourself, as you pointed out, was to get married at the age of 21 to your high school sweetheart. And then a few years later, you became a dad, which you told me changed your life profoundly. And you said it simplified everything. Um, but um, tragically, the same year that you became a dad, your own father received some terrible health news, which I know would ultimately change the course of your life. Do you want, if it's not too painful, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, You're talking about the marriage or the dad, the painful part? Yeah. I'm pretty sure the dad. <laughs> marriage seems pretty lovely. So, so my, um, yeah, to put this into a little bit more context, my, um, my, my daughter was born, uh, my daughter Grace was born in July uh, of 2013, and there was this period of time where, yeah, that was, everything was, was very just blissful and simplified. Um, and then my dad was, um, my mom called saying my dad was having trouble finishing his sentences and they didn't know why. And they were going to take him in for, you know, for evaluation. That was in, it was in October of that same year. Um, the you know, first thing that I did was basically get on a plane because uh, that same day, the, uh, the scans showed that there were, um, there were some, there was something there, um, and that they were going to go in and, and, and operate, um, the next day. And so I just jumped into research mode, which was, you know, what I was doing for work. Um, uh, it would be like, Hey, you're presenting on Canadian oil sands in two weeks. <laughs> Good luck. No background in it, but really just being thrown into the deep end to try to figure things out. Um, so I just went into that, into that mode. And by the time, that I got to um, the hospital the next day, uh, it was clear from just reading, you know, things on the internet, but also papers and, and stuff like that, that uh, that it was going to either be um, a type of brain tumor called a meningioma, um, which is sort of a low grade. I mean, it still can be fatal if it grows in the wrong place or things like but that. Pretty sensitive to radiation, right? Yeah, so you can treat yeah. it with radiation well, um, or it was going to be glioblastoma. Um, and, and this was because he had multiple tumors, uh, at, at presentation. And, and then of course the, the surgery happens, they come out, they say it's glioblastoma. Uh, and so I had already prepared myself for, for if that was, if that was going to be the answer. Um, but it was those multiple tumors that ended up being kind of the key that, that led to, 
the path of, of starting a company in the space is because having the multiple tumors both gave him a very poor prognosis, um, uh, but it also made him ineligible for um, the many different clinical trials that I, I tried to get him into uh, as a as an initial reaction to, to learning that that was the, that was the diagnosis because they were only able to remove about half of one of the three tumors. Um, so we, we were, and, and, and then when we had molecular te- we had, you know, sequencing done, um, and a second opinion at Sloan Kettering, the, uh, the recommendation was to go on the standard treatment and, you know, reading the reports and doing the research standard treatment was very unlikely to work for, for him because of these, um, uh, particular biomarkers that he had. And I note that even at that time, you sort of, even though you didn't really have a background in biology, you, you still looked into trying to develop new treatments for your dad. Is that right? There's, there's the elements of luck in every story. Um, and, 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 and one of them here was that the Society for Neuro-Oncology, which is the, you know, the main brain tumor meeting every year, um, happened to be in San Francisco in November, right? So um, I just used my undergraduate email address to sign up as a student, uh, and 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 I and I showed up with um, a few relationships that I had already formed with patient advocates, uh, and because these patient advocates fund all of the top brain tumor researchers in the field, uh, they would in between sessions introduce me to uh, you know this is the top surgeon in the world. This is the top researcher for the type of mutation that your dad had. You know, all of those relationships formed very early on for me. Uh, so it was both, you know, sort of research with the, with the folks who know what, what they were talking about uh, and, and being pointed in the right direction as to what papers to read or who to go talk to. Um, you know, we had very specific things in the early days that we were trying to, to, to answer in his case. You, it, it's a lot simpler if you're trying to filter it through, like, one person's case, right? What are the questions that I need to answer? Did you find it – I mean, I, I know, you know, my experience is if you talk to five doctors, you get, you know, seven opinions of what to do. How, how did you filter all that information and what must have been very much um, – you know, cross purposes some of it, right? You do this one way, do that, no, do it that way. How do you, as a family, or how did you, as a family, oh, decide such a good how question. to move forward? That's such a good question, Lisa. I, I think that that's an extremely challenging um, problem to tackle. Yeah, and and that's actually maybe where the behavioral economics becomes useful because uh, mm-hmm. it's the same. It's the same with a macroeconomic research topic. Uh, if you go ask people about. Back to that Canadian oil sands example, or you know, if I was supposed to research whether China was going to change their currency policy, there's no right answer. Uh, everybody is going to come into that conversation with their own sets of biases, and so I think that one way, certainly understanding where the advice is coming from, um, and in, and in particular, now that I'm on, I guess on the inside of the the healthcare system in some ways, you, you see that right. So if you go and ask what are clinical trials that my father should enroll in to academics at different institutions, if they don't have the trial uh, at their institution, then they're going to be a lot less likely, A, to just know about it, but B, to recommend it. Uh, and, and, and so you really, I had to, I viewed myself as being the, uh, the quarterback here and, or, you know, or sort of, or in, in my case, it was easy to use, the framework of being a, a portfolio manager or a trader. Uh, 
there is no, there's only, it's very probabilistic. Um, we don't know what the right answer is. So let's weigh the, the choices and actually map it out. And that's, that's what I often would do is say, okay, if we do this, then what options does that take away? Um, the data on that. Um, uh, but it was, it was, it was, uh, extremely stressful and, uh, it also wasn't my decision, right? So from a personal standpoint, one of the hardest things was, I would, I would say, okay, here's what I think is the most rational thing, but then that also, you know, it's my dad's choice ultimately in his care, and, and you've got the treating physician right. um, who has all of his own sets of, of thoughts and constraints. Um, and so it was every, every decision was in some form a debate, and I just tried to focus on the data, but often what I found is that the data was very lacking, and so now you're sort of overfitting to one person's opinion almost every time. And I also think that it's very common for the patient to default to listening to the doctor because they're so worried or afraid. They're just looking for some sort of expert opinion, even when they're in their own gut or their family's experience and thinking that the answer might be quite different. Yeah, and, and I think that one of the one of the formative experiences for me was going to that that brain tumor meeting, right? Because in, in that setting, the, the, the same, the, the leaders in the field are not wearing white lab coats. They're presenting their data, they're getting asked questions, and, and it's clear that there are some areas where maybe they have, they have good data, but most, at least in a, in a very challenging disease like glioblastoma, they don't, right? And they'll, and they'll, you know, they're not talking in a way like they do. And so I guess that, that sort of, it, it it was a bit like going behind the curtain um, and and finding the wizard, you know. Um, That's really interesting. So almost from the beginning, you were able to, you know, see them not just in some sort of like heroic or have some sort of or, or unrealistic idea of it, but you kind of saw them, um, you know, feed a, feed a clay and all of that. So how did this experience evolve into notable labs? So it happened organically uh, and really by crossing options off the table. Um, so the, the first thing that we, we did was, you know, made, made a list of every clinical trial around the world and, and found out, uh, that he could not enroll in them, be, be, many of them because he had multiple tumors. We had, and as I mentioned, had his tumor sequenced to try to see if that might lead to any treatment options, which it didn't. Uh, and, and what I got excited about as a, as a potential route was, there were many drugs that were that were being repurposed, um, and so what I what I mean by that is, they you know had originally been developed for another kind of cancer or even you know a non-cancer disease, and there had been some researcher, whether through luck or through um, through a hypothesis, had discovered anti-brain cancer activities either you know in the lab, and, and some of those had actually even made it into clinical trials. And that was attractive because those drugs being already FDA approved could be prescribed uh, with what's called an off-label um, prescription for, for my dad. But the clinical trials that were being run with them were almost all of single, like one drug at a time in patients that had failed all available options. And so if I wanted to actually go access those in the trial, I would be waiting for my dad to progress and then trying to you know, use one therapy as a Hail Mary. And that, that didn't seem like a very viable strategy, but that provided almost an ingredient list um, to, to make a combination therapy. 
And so I rank ordered every drug that was being tested in that way based upon its level of clinical evidence and, you know, went to the physician and and said, okay, like pick three. Uh, I don't care which three, but like let's, or, or, you know, and this was, this was based upon um, what's worked in, in many types of cancer, but also what's worked well in, in, uh, in HIV therapy and infectious disease. You know, this is one of the best ways to control against evolution uh, of the cancer yourself a chance. But the challenge is, is of my list of drugs, there were so many potential combinations. And so there was no rationality to which of them you would choose. And, and so that, that was really the, the, the core problem is how would you select among all these combinations? Because you don't have biomarkers associated with why those drugs are working in the particular form of, of brain cancer. And so that's where needed the actual lab to test my dad's cells out of his body um, uh, across all of the potential drug combinations to, to rank order which ones went, which would be most promising. And there are companies that, that do that and have done that for a long time, uh, but they did not have they did not have tests that were specific to brain cancer and the biology of brain cancer is so different. And there were researchers in the field who had had advanced some um, uh, pretty exciting new approaches but they were only, you know, being used to publish papers, right? They weren't available um, to a, a patient, um, you know, who wanted to, if they wanted to pay for that. So, when, so in essence, what you were looking for a way was for a way for a, if only you were saying to yourself there was a company or a someone who would be able to test for purpose um, the specific actual cancer uh, that an individual patient has and evaluate multiple potential therapeutics and come up with the readout that optimizes, in theory, the best treatment for that particular patient based on how those um, treatments in an in vitro or in a uh, in, in an artificial, in, in some kind of lab setting, responded to the actual patient's cancer. Exactly, right. And, and it's the ultimate in personalized medicine in real time, right? Yeah, it is. That was the goal, right? And hence, notable labs, right? And it's and it's the dream. I mean, it's it's a it's a very ambitious uh, goal. It's always going to be uh, the lab is never going to recapitulate everything in the patient. But the science had advanced so far inside academia that that I said, why isn't there a, a company that specializes in in a partic- in particular types of cancer using like the latest the latest advances in the academic setting? And in particular, there was um, there was a great set of labs at UCSF just down the street for me, um, you know, with postdocs who were looking for jobs. So uh, there was there was a there was a sort of a, a surmountable gap um, to go after with some seed funding from um, from Founders Fund, which we were able to secure. So how do you when you think about a product like this or a service like this, how do you think about it getting paid for in the healthcare system? Yeah, I right? want you to talk about that. How you go from the initial idea here, right, which was a clinic, like Lisa's yeah. suggesting, was clinical, like essentially a lab services, you know, give us your tumor. And and it really, your initial focus, if correct me if I'm wrong, was, was liquid tumors just because it's sort of easier to do. And, and you have a CLIA lab setup that I've been to, actually. It's pretty cool in Foster City. That it was that now was the initial focus. But then I understand in sort of in relation to Lisa's question, your focus is evolving. I know we only have a limited time left, but if you want to just go into that, that would be helpful for us. Yeah, listeners. of course. So, uh, and, and Lisa, your, your question around how do you get that paid for um, was the, the, the question that I would get from everyone after, after starting off mm-hmm. on this, on this mm-hmm. path. Um, and it is one of the reasons that we, 
we've focused not on um, launching this as a as a you know, decision support tool for clinicians, but uh, initially as um, you know profiling a drug across uh, many different patients because with with that approach we can see does this drug, which might be an experimental drug that a pharmaceutical company is developing or a new combination that hasn't been studied in patients before, where might it work before we subject those patients to a, a, a clinical trial, right? So um, that makes it a lot easier to, um, to optimize your test because you can tune the parameters of what you're measuring to the mechanism of action of the drug. Um, so even though we do have the CLIA lab and even though we have been running clinical trials showing you know, some very promising results, we just did a, a, a study with Stanford that showed 83 and 85% positive and negative predictive value in myelodysplastic syndrome using the drug sensitivity testing. Um, we, we have not tried to monetize that as a business model um, or offer it uh, uh, you know, to patients outside of the clinical trials where we're developing it, and that's because we want to make sure that the that, that the data that is generated out of these studies really speaks for itself uh, before uh, making any kind of claims around the the commercial potential of uh, the idea. And I think it's been tried so many times before that it's a very very important question as to how do you get this paid for, um, and you know are you trying to get it paid for per drug that it's sort of developed for, or are you trying to get it paid for universally as a selection tool for physicians. I think they're actually quite different questions. Does it produce a different outcome, what you do, just focusing on the, the personalized medicine side of it? Does it produce a different outcome compared to like what a company like, say, a PSYAPS does or Tempest that combines genetic information and EMR information and says, you know, effectively the same thing, this combination of drugs should be used for this patient? Yes, it's very complimentary. I mean, I know in theory that's what they would, or maybe the answer is that's what they would suggest and then you'd test it. Yeah, so so it's very complimentary. We can take um, a hypothesis that comes from a, um, a, a genetically um, uh, identified treatment um, and test that on the physical cells. Where we're doing the drug screening directly on the cells is helpful is where you don't necessarily understand the biology of of the cancer, um, and you don't necessarily understand how the drug works, but there's still activity that you can measure. So it allows you to discover new biology. I think this is that, that point right there is so important. I mean, I think, I think people by and large think we figured out science and we figured out chemistry. And so why can't they just get it right, right? And I think the real truth of the matter is some of this, so much of this is still just unknown. Utterly just, empirical. Totally Guesswork. Oh, right. But uh, the flip of that is if, you know, so, I mean, you know, I wrote this whole piece about phenotypic screening. There's a yeah, lot yeah. of companies, Recursion and Citro, that are really into the concept of phenotypic screening, which is which leverages empiricism. But then I can tell you, I absolutely can tell you that at a pharmaceutical company, what they worry about with such empiricism is, well, then how do you optimize it? How do you mm-hmm. do structure function? The fact that you have an, you know, kind of an interesting phenotypic observation, how do you go from that to optim? What do you optimize against to develop a drug? Yeah. Um, and so I think this is a little bit different. This is in a position where you are like looking at how do cells empirically react. Um, but my understanding and um, uh, is that you're still trying, um, Matthew, you're still, your goal isn't to be a services company, right? I mean, you're trying to be, 
Or let me know about. I mean, maybe I don't have it right. Are you trying to be a services company ultimately, like the highly specialized services company, or are you ultimately trying to be a therapeutics company? What do you, what when what do you what do you see as what is your model or what what kind of company are you evolving into? Yeah, so I, I think to be honest, we sit at the intersection of of diagnostics and services and therapeutics, and that's a that's a that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, makes it hard. See all of the above. <laughs> yes, see all of the yeah, exactly. Uh, option D, um, and, and in particular, your to, to react to your your question or your your comment around um, you know what do you optimize for? This is the reason that we focus with drugs that are already in the clinic, uh, because what we want to what we're interested in is does what happens in the lab predict on that patient sample predict what happens in that patient. And if you look at that through the lens of a particular drug, it's much easier to get a statistically significant result. And so that might look like a services relationship with another company, but what you're really proving is does the technology work? Um, uh, and, and that could lead to I mean, an is that similar to, to new medic, right? So it's, uh, or new therapeutic combination. So it's really, I mean, this is sort of the definition of translational medicine. Um, using using patient samples as your sort of fuel to get there. Right, but 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 is that similar to Numedi in terms of the repurposing focus? But they've turned into a drug company. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. so so I think that there there um, there are in silico ways to do this, like Numedi. Right, there are trying to gain insights from from data sets. We, we're really we're generating our own data set so yeah. in, in a way where we're similar to recursion. We're building this off of like lab based data, but they're not cell lines, like they are patient samples. So we also have the component of we're trying to predict what would happen in the clinical trial. So it's really, I think, where it adds the most value to the drug development process um, is in that sort of phase phase 1B, phase 2 area of we know this drug is safe, we know it's like a good drug in terms of its PK and PD properties, and, um, uh, but we don't necessarily know who it's going to work for and um, and what combinations to consider. So, so Matthew, let me ask you the question in a different way because I don't think I've been articulating it right. Who are your customers? So we view them as um, we view them as academic medicine, which is continuing to do you know clinical trials with us. Oh, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in terms of showing, <laughs> yeah. the, the primary focus right now is still in showing how where this works uh, and how well in which types of cancers and which types of drugs. And so academic trials become very important for that. Um, and yes, good, good luck is, is well taken. Uh, and then also with pharmaceutical companies. And, so, and then we are, we are on the back of all of that, building out our own insights. It'll be interesting to watch you evolve because I think, you know, the, the tension between what you want to do and what you may be forced to do to create maximum value for exit is to focus, right? And then a lot of, I think a lot of these companies like yours, which have many good ideas and many interesting ways of going to market, ultimately have to pick one in order to get, you know, to grow their company. And it's a very challenging decision. I think. Yes. And I think we had to make that decision early on. Um, I think the, the biggest kind of fork in the road is around the diagnostics decision. Um, and, and is that going to be your business model? And you because decided to do both. <laughs> if so, at least in the short term, you need to be putting all of your resources towards like large, large trials that that validate the the clinical utility, um, uh, which is happening for us, but not on the same time scale as if we were trying to primarily monetize via that business model. 
Now, I know you've told me that, like, you know, that I know, like, a real regret was that the approach you were trying to do, you know, it you know, you're, it wasn't able to, um, you know, be applicable or, or, or develop in time for, for, for your dad. But you must think that how you evolved your career would, would make him so proud. Do you think about, last question really is, do you think about that a lot? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and, I, and I actually found out um, from some of his, Coworkers at his funeral, um, you know, they, they said that because he, he was alive when the company started um, and already was declining, but uh, he was telling his his coworkers how how proud and and you know he was of, of the efforts and it, it it means an immense amount for me to be trying to push things forward and in, in his legacy. Um, I'm sorry, it's a little, it's a little hard <laughs> to to go there, but. You know, it wasn't a conversation that him and I had directly, um, but but I'm just so thankful that that I I got the chance to to, to learn that um, you know from from folks who who were talking to him about what uh, what we were trying to do, um, and it, you know, it's it's going to be a long road, but uh, it, it, yeah. It, it's such worthy work, and, and we just sort of really wish you the, the very best. And we're, we're so grateful for you for sharing with us and our listeners um, your, 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 your experiences here uh, developing the company and, and sharing with us your motivations. Thanks so much for the opportunity to listen to you. It was great. really appreciated the, the conversation, and, and thanks, um, thanks for taking the time, and love your guys' podcast. That was pretty uh, powerful. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's always so uh, gratifying to hear entrepreneurs get emotionally, you know, beclamped, if you will, and because so, they're so passionate about what they're doing, because it's so meaningful to them. I mean, that is obviously a key predictor of success. Well, you know, it's interesting, right? I mean, here he was this, you know, clearly quantitative guy, you know, Wall Street, all this Peter Thiel stuff, and then he's, you know, really, you know, in a driven way, trying to apply what he's learning um, and, you know, it sounds well, like... It sounds to me like it's the same kind of job in a way. It's just instead <laughs> of currencies, you're, you know, you're, you're or building a mutual fund, you're picking drugs. You I mean, know? What sounds interesting is that because his background almost was particularly attuned to ambiguity, mm-hmm. he, in a sense, he's more, you know, well, the trombone and all. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like he's more attuned to some of the, the inherent ambiguity and the challenges um, uh, than, than maybe others in tech. Um, but I still think the real challenges of, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not like what he was. What he really believes is, you know, obviously, if you could figure out empirically, like through some kind of like testing, mm-hmm. what's the right treatment for individual patients, and figuring that out on a per patient basis based on the individual characteristics right. of the cancer, of course, you'd rather give patients that treatment. It's unclear whether you'll actually be able to do that. Whether there is one tumor you can pick out, whether a little piece that you pick out is going to be representative, or whether there are multiple tumors, it's a really difficult problem. Well, and they've even shown that there's different genetics across the same tumor. And That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, no, right. exactly. Our friend yeah. Ben Ebert has described a lot of this biology um, uh, very carefully. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you can always think of reasons why it shouldn't work. Right. The flip of it is if someone's able to start having a treatment that does better up front, then you can really, then that might in just make enough of a tipping point to enable the body's immune system to have a better chance to fight the rest. What always fascinates me as a non-scientist, non-doctor, is how hard it is to translate things from the lab to the clinic, to the, you know, yeah. like the whole, I mean, just my whole training and as a, as a professional person is about how you make things commercial, Yeah, you know? And so the fact that that there's this sort of, uh, 
like the, the old South Park, you know, uh, business model. Right. You know, first you do this, second part step, one, uh, part two, yeah. you know, third step, make lots of money. That whole second step is missing in healthcare in a lot of ways in medicine. It's so fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's because there are just very different incentives at different places. I mean, if you're, you know, a lot of people in academia, the motivation is to get grants. So your end of the paper right. is, oh, you know, this has potential therapeutic applications, as if writing that sentence confers the application. And I think that's also, to be a little, not super political, but I think that's why there's so much, you know, sort of crapping on industry because people think, oh, academia does all this stuff, has essentially did all the work and, mm-hmm. you know, industry's getting all the money. But I think actually going from a crude and often unproven, often inaccurate, it turns mm-hmm. out, idea right. to something that you can reliably and durably give to patients is far, both coming up with the original idea and then right. driving well, into clinical reach more both. difficult. All right, yeah. well, anyways. Please remember to rate us on iTunes, leave a, iTunes, leave a comment, and help others discover the show. You can follow David's writing at Astounding Health Tech on the Timberman Report. And you can follow the astounding Lisa Soonan <laughs> at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that includes a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Sign up.